0: Last week in our time in John 7, we pointed out that Jesus continues to expose the distinction between those who believe in him and those who do not believe in him. And our purpose for doing that, which I believe is the purpose that this has been recorded for us, is that so that more people will believe and have eternal life. And in the context of a local church, you would assume that there are fewer people who don't believe than outside of the church. We would certainly hope that that's true in the case with our church. That For most of you, you do believe. You are not deceived having believed something, but something other than the true object of legitimate saving faith. But let me start with somewhat of a polarizing statement. Most people who think they are Christians are not. That cannot be overstated. As reflected in the book of John, the masses who are following him, who John the Apostle refers to as disciples turn and walk away from him. I suggest that even in our church, where there is passionate, loving, humble devotion to the purity and the depth of God's word in what I believe to be truly a New Testament and exemplary fashion, there are false converts sitting in this room. There are those who are, in fact, in some sense... Disciples. When you look at the purity of the term, the term disciple in its most foundational definition, you simply see someone who's willing to be taught. He's willing to be a student. He's willing to follow a teacher. And in our culture, that often looks like someone who's willing to repeatedly, you know, kind of week after week, sit under some sort of simulation of Bible teaching, or maybe even some real Bible teaching. And so let's not concern ourselves in this moment so much with the false converts outside these walls, but let's concern ourselves with the Christian duty that we have as legitimate disciples of Jesus Christ, those who are in fact redeemed, regenerate, saved by grace through faith, not by works, who reveal that in a devotion to good works. For those who legitimately find themselves in the faith, let us be concerned about those we know who very likely may be deceived, because as I said, they are certainly among us. There is the assuredness of that in Scripture. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that the purpose for factions among you is that those who are in fact approved, uh, we like the term affirmed, that's why we speak of our membership affirmation, those who are affirmed among you, those who believers would say, yeah, that's a believer based on what I understand a life devoted to the gospel to look like. Those who are approved, those who are affirmed, they will be known to be approved. That's what factions are for. That's why God in his sovereign design has allowed for tares to exist among the wheat. In no place in Scripture are we told to remove the tares until that point at which someone who has been consistently professing to be a Christian proves himself not to be. And that is, in many cases, quite clearly done. And that's why we have Church discipline, or what we like to call church restoration, in Galatians 6 and Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, among other places. So let's not concern ourselves so much with speaking critically of those whom we very likely can't have much influence on, at least in an ecclesiological sense. Let's concern ourselves with our own selves, each of us individually, that we might judge the body as Paul commands of us in First Corinthians 11, that we would not be condemned as the world is condemned. You see this fine-tuning going on as we move ourselves through the book of John. You see more and more and more Jesus widening the gap between believers and unbelievers. If you're following along, if you've been reading, or even if you haven't, and you've just been here on Sunday mornings, then you've seen this gap getting broader and broader between those who, in fact, believe. That's the key term. They believe, and those who do not believe in him. A significant portion of my day, one day, this last week, was taken up interacting with a person who refuses, a number of persons who refuse to believe that Jesus came from heaven, where he in John 17 says, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world existed, right? Speaking of his pre-earth existence, you know, when the creator of the earth comes to earth as a human, you can assume that he was God prior to that. I mean, so much throughout scripture that proves his deity, Some of my time was spent this last week, two or three hours, dealing with this person who adamantly is committed to gutting Jesus of his deity. And his real purpose, which I believe is driven by Satan, is to persuade others and block them from the power of the gospel by convincing them that he in fact is not God, but persuading them to trust in this non God, Jesus, who is not God, who cannot take them with him to heaven because he didn't come from heaven. Simple enough. Many times, and you're seeing this, I think, as you go, as you read, many times when you see Jesus report that he's going back to heaven, he points out that that's where he came from. If he didn't come from heaven, literally, then he's not the one who's going back there. That's an impotent, worthless Jesus. It's not the true Jesus. When you make plain statements from the plain scripture, and there is a repeated systematic effort to undo the truth that is repeatedly stated about Jesus, that he is from heaven, that he came from heaven, that he preexisted the creation of the world, that he is the creator, that he is the sustainer of the world. When you attempt to undo all those statements, when Thomas calls him God, and you say that somehow he was talking to the Father, not Jesus, although Thomas was clearly having a conversation with Jesus, not the Father, when you systematically do away with, strip Jesus of his deity, really gut him of his deity, His eternal deity. You don't have Jesus. You say, why would someone be so committed to that? Well, because he doesn't have ears to hear. He doesn't have eyes to see. It's very Mormon-like. Very Mormon-like. It's a desire for some affirmation for a religious success, a religious accomplishment. And so they will attach themselves to some things about Jesus, just enough of Jesus to be affirmed by religious people, but not the true Jesus. The partial Jesus is not the true Jesus. So in our review, we want to point out last week, point number one in an effort to expose the distinction between those who believe and those who don't believe. Point number one was Jesus, sent by the Father from heaven, prepares those who follow and believe him. We said that in his teaching, that's what he's doing. He's preparing believers to believe more accurately. He's teaching. That's the purpose of teaching. There would be no gift of teaching, no purpose for teaching, no ministry of teaching within the church if everyone just simply was downloaded all the information that they needed instantaneously the moment they became regenerate. The purpose of teaching is to correct you. It's to change your wrong thinking. The person who repeatedly kind of tenaciously sits under sound teaching and at nearly every turn does everything he can to resist sound teaching shows himself not to believe. He's simply looking to be a judge of the word rather than being judged by the word. Jesus' role, having been sent by the Father from heaven, subordinating himself to the Father, that's an important doctrine, right? Someone might say, well, if he's equal with the Father, which Scripture says he is, if he is in fact God, why does the Father send him? That's part of the Trinitarian design that the father being the father, the son being the son, but the son being equal with the father, deliberately, intentionally, sovereignly subordinates himself to the father to show that design within the Trinity. One of the blessings for you and me, then, is that we understand subordination. We understand submission. Can you not submit yourself to believers as commanded in Ephesians in light of the fact that God the Son subordinated himself to God the Father? Of course you can when you see it that way. But the person who says, I'd never submit myself to any man. The church, organized religion, all that's a big mess. I just love Jesus. You don't love the Jesus of the Bible if that's your statement. Yeah, you may have run into some difficulties in organized religion, but organized religion is God's design, and it's called the church. Don't call it organized religion if you don't want. It doesn't really matter. The point is that God gave us the structure of the body called the church. And the command repeatedly throughout the New Testament is interdependence, submitting ourselves to each other. Jesus is preparing the would-be apostles, those who would be apostles, to be the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20, the prophets and the apostles. But one day when Paul writes Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he would turn that over then from the apostles and the prophets to the shepherd teachers and evangelists. That then would result in the body being raised up or grown up. Paul uses the phrase grow up there into Christ, who is the head. That's what Jesus is doing now. He's laying the ecclesiological foundation. This is why we don't have nor do we need apostles today. They served their purpose. When John the apostle died, the apostolic succession died. God's design for apostleship, God's design for the sign gifts was completed. So thereafter, there are shepherd, teachers, pastors, elders, bishops, overseers. Those terms are all interchangeable. So in verse 25 of our text last week, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, "'Is not this the man whom they seek to kill?' And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? We know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So Jesus here, as we pointed out last week, is preparing those who follow him to believe in him. He's preparing believers to believe in him better, more deeply, more rightly, more biblically. Point two, Jesus returning to the Father in heaven perplexes those who follow and reject him. So he's preparing those who believe, but he's perplexing those who disbelieve. Makes sense, right? You can say that this is somewhat of a very simple distillation of the Christian faith, that when Jesus speaks, believers believe and unbelievers disbelieve. That's how it works. And yet, in some moments, because believers believe and they believe more faithfully and they commit themselves faithfully to Christian works for which they are predestined, then unbelievers believe, right? Believers are doing what believers do, and then they take the opportunity by way of a faithful, substantial, vibrant relationship, and they communicate the power of the gospel, what it really looks like. And then unbelievers become believers. It's very natural in a spiritual sense. We're going to see that in magnificent color in our text Together this morning. So Jesus returning to the Father from whence he came perplexes those who won't believe while preparing those who do believe. Verse 32 the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. This is a frightening statement. Should be. Should be. Let's be clear. I want to say it lovingly, but I need to say it very firmly. Some of you don't know Christ. And it's proven by your willingness to dip your toe in the body of Christ on a very, very convenient level. And the reality is that therefore then, at least you're in the right chapter, whoever that is. (laughs) Chapter 7. I've always thought I wanted to do a recording of the Bible myself because most of those, you know, Max McLean, everybody knows Max McLean, right? Chapter 7. Nobody reads like that. (laughs) My point in this is to say that where Jesus says, Where I am, you cannot come, he's speaking to those who are well polished. He's speaking to those who look good on the outside, like the cup. It's clean on the outside and dirty on the inside. I don't know about you, but when I clean my coffee cup, I wash the inside vigorously, and I might clean the outside. But the Pharisee, the one who looks good on the outside, is only concerned about the outside. And the the very picturesque terminology given to the Pharisees is that they are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. I remember being that person. So frustrating, so painful. Verse 35 from last week says, The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will see me and you will not find me and where I am. You cannot come Well, according to Romans 11, God had put them in a state of stupor because of their unbelieving rebellion. They had gone past the eternal point of no return, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's unforgivable, and it happens today. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, verse 14. Now remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to believers in an ecclesiological structure in a church and so he's saying strive for peace with everyone you know insofar as it depends upon you you can't strive for peace with people you've never met but you can with those in your local body and that's the idea strive for holiness without which no one will see the lord See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You see what happens? It's just like, you know, you got a piece of fruit in the fridge. It's been in there a while. And you first looked at it, oh, there's a little something. And then two weeks later, there's a lot of something. That's how it spreads in the church. And that's what he's hoping to stay off by warning them, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You want to know why we love the doctrines of grace? Because people fail to obtain the grace of God by pursuing God by works. So our love for God is given to us, but we nurture that by grace Not by performance. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness, often the person who doesn't rest in grace becomes bitter against those who do, so that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many. That's what I mean by the piece of fruit. You know? It starts with a little bit of mold, and eventually it's got a lot of it. And many, in this case, become defiled because the one who was bitter was not addressed. causes trouble, and many become defiled. Verse 16, he gets specific, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Stop there for a minute. He's getting very specific. He's talking about a specific person. And we certainly know those who put on a pretty good show and they're engaging in sexual immorality. Pastor Art Azurdia, many of you have been moved by his teaching over the years. I've watched him preach a couple of times. Once you get over all the hand motions, you think, man, this is some amazing content. And he's an adulterer. gave up his family for a harlot at least two different women this guy was really good at winning people with a winsome attitude a number of faithful believers from our church took a trip to Portland and visited his church and he approached them and he said who are you guys and they had this wonderful discussion and they sat under his teaching and the whole time, that man very likely, within a few days prior and a few days subsequent to that, was having sex with a woman that wasn't his wife. He's a Pharisee. He's a liar. And there's a sense in which he's a false teacher. Here you have Esau, who's playing this game, and he sells his birthright. Look at this. Look at it closely. Verse 17. For you know that afterward, now listen closely. If you're not looking at it in your own Bible, listen carefully. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, because everybody does, right? He was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Why do the tears matter? Well, either he was sincere or he wasn't. The point is, whatever was going on in his heart wasn't enough to overcome having blasphemed the Holy Spirit, having heard truth enough. This is the case with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It's the case in Hebrews 6. It's the case in John these people who are disciples of Christ who will eventually turn away, Jesus says to them, it's too late. Some of you are not loving those in your homes who you know are playing a game. You have an Esau scenario and You don't have someone like that in your home. It's very likely that you have someone like that at the workplace or in your neighborhood. And in every moment where you deliberately or even seemingly affirm that person's Christian faith, you're helping seal their eternity. You might be thinking, well, what about the sovereignty of God? The person who throws that question out at that point is a person who doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God. He's been mocking the sovereignty of God every time he hears it. But then in cases like this where he wants to use it conveniently, he says, what about the sovereignty of God? So he not only hates the sovereignty of God, he hates the responsibility of man that he says the Bible is more committed to. He hates both. And so the true Reformed Christian, the Reformed theologian, loves both. He says, yes, God is sovereign, but we've been given commands in the Bible and we must be humble and submit ourselves to both. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is so helpful. The secret things belong to the Lord. But those that are revealed have been given to us that we and our sons might obey his every word. The secret things, those are all things that fall within God's sovereignty that we don't see, we don't understand, they haven't happened yet. We look back on them and we say, oh, that was God's sovereignty, even though it violated God's commanded will. The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things revealed to us are given to us that we might obey every word of the Lord. And the person who really hates both doctrines attempts to confuse them and dismiss both of them so that he's not accountable for either. And he mocks those who are committed to both. And I would say that would be Esau. Very religious person, but clearly not committed to holiness. They're asking, why does he say, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me? They don't understand. They don't realize he's talking about them having the door to heaven shut in their face. They're playing a game. But we finished with this. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This morning, we'll see in our text, Jesus calls those who are spiritually parched to drink from the living water of life, so that water will overflow into other needy, thirsty souls. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said... Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So, in our text this morning, as I said, our desire is that we would see that Jesus calls those who are spiritually parched to drink from the living water of life, so that water will overflow into other needy, thirsty souls. Point number one. I want you to see the satisfaction of the believer. The feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths is commanded by the Lord in Exodus 23, Leviticus 23. But in Deuteronomy 16 we see maybe the clearest explanation of what it is. The Lord calls everyone in Israel, every person to participate, really to celebrate for 7 days in the days following the gathering of the harvest. Deuteronomy sixteen, thirteen says, You shall keep the feast of Booth seven days, when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your own towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord your God. At the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. So, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, was that time where Israelites were commanded to live in tents and tabernacles to commemorate the time of their forefathers, their ancestors, having traveled, really wandering throughout the desert for so many years. And living in tents. So the festival of booths lasted seven days, and on the following day, the eighth day, was a special Sabbath. It was a time of rest from those seven days of feasting and celebrating. This included joyous singing while dismantling the booths in which they had been staying for the seven days. So we don't know which, but either on the seventh or the eighth day in this celebration, Jesus makes this major proclamation a few centuries prior to this proclamation the jewish tradition had been added to the festival based on what's recorded in numbers 20 verse 11 moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice and water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock psalm 78:16 says he made streams Come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like rivers, hoping to express their gratitude to the Lord for the water provided them in the desert every day during the seven days of the Feast of Booths. A golden flagon, or a metal pot, would be filled with water and carried in a procession to the water gate into the court, and a sofar, a horn of an animal, would be blown three times. During that procession, they would sing Psalm 113 through Psalm 118. And when the singers would arrive at Psalm 118, this water in the flagon would be poured out in sacrificial offering to the Lord in gratitude for his provision of water in the desert. There would also, under the direction of the Pharisees, be a prayer for rain as part of that sacrifice. Psalm 118 begins, "O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so through the singing of the entire psalm, they're worshiping him for the joy that God provided water, but they don't want to forget God's kindness in providing water so that he will continue to provide water. Well, verse 37, On the last day of the feast... The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus proclaims, This is the same term used for when he tells Lazarus to come out of the tomb. This is not some sort of casual suggestion. Jesus proclaims with a loud voice, a heartfelt outcry. This is a universal broadcast to a parched and dying world to find satisfaction for its thirsty soul in the waters of life. And the Israelites understood the analogy because they were in the midst in this festival of celebrating the blessing of water knowing that they might not have enough. Drought is not uncommon in Israel. The result is they were constantly praying for enough water. By the end of summer, the cisterns would have been getting low, and they would definitely need to continue to pray for water. Isaiah 55 1 is really the precursor to this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. You understand the point of that? Obtain things that. You don't have the ability to obtain. What does that mean? It's free. It's free and it's abundant. This illustrates the grace of God. It's free and it's abundant. It's no cost and it's high value. In fact, it's ultimate eternal value. The eternal living water that Jesus provides was prefigured all throughout the Old Testament. But then in Matthew 5, verse 6, in Jesus' sermon, he gives a very clear picture of this in a concise way, as he does throughout the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the person who simply longs to have his desires met, his dreams fulfilled, his career elevated, won't be satisfied. We have some friends whose daughter has pursued an acting career She recently noted to her parents all the very successful actors that I know are very unhappy. You wouldn't know it because they're actors. That's what they do. Professional athletes. You know how much money LeBron James is going to make? You ready? $2 million a week. but he doesn't know Christ. You say, well, at least he's a Laker now. (laughs) He's not happy. I saw something that indicated, you know, he's never cheated on his wife. You don't hear these horrible stories about him. He doesn't have children out of wedlock. He's committed to decent conduct for the most part. Very different from many professional athletes. That's great. That really, I mean, I mean that, right? Praise God that He's restrained Him from many of those things in His grace. But $2 million a week won't buy you happiness. The Beatles can't buy me love. You get the point? John 4 13 says it well, Jesus said to the woman at the well, you remember, we were in this a few months ago. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about physical water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You see, Israel's literal thirst in the desert and their satisfaction with God Literally providing literal gushing floods of water was a type of what would come and what the woman at the well would experience in the moment. It was a real life foreshadowing in the desert. So what did she do? She went and told the people in Sychar. And what was the result? many of them experienced the joy of living water that overflowed from her heart. And it wasn't just a cheesy smile. It was a willingness to explain, this man told me everything about me. And you can add to that, and he still showed me grace and love. That's evangelism. That's how it works. That as you grow in your joy and your willingness to legitimately trust the Jesus of the Bible, you're going to Be effective in helping others trust the Jesus of the Bible. Verse 38 Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart flow rivers of living water. And then he goes on to speak of the fact that this necessarily is a byproduct of being indwelt by the Spirit of God. Look at verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now there's a lot we can say about this, and there's somewhat of a dispute as to what the Holy Spirit's role was in the Old Testament. Let's clear it up. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, "...I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh." And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey. You say, whoa, so the Holy Spirit did indwell the Old Testament saint? In some sense he did, but not with the fullness that he chose to do at Pentecost. There's a greater fullness of indwelling of the Holy Spirit as we see displayed in Acts 2. In John fourteen fifteen, this is how Jesus speaks of that. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You say, that seems like it might contradict the Ezekiel passage. The point is that in the New Testament, by God's design, the church as individual believers would be indwelt with a greater fullness than the Old Testament saint was. Often you see the preposition on, that the Spirit of God came on, especially particular leaders. Many times he is in the believer, but it's not permanent. It's not something that is lasting. So the work of the Spirit is no less significant in the Old Testament saint, but in the New Testament, it is that the work of the Spirit is a constant work, constant comforting, constant recall of God's Word, constant conviction of sin, 1425, and John, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. When you're engaged in legitimate Christian fellowship within the body of Christ, the Spirit of God is doing a work in you, and you say, well, do we need to pray that he will? No, you don't you need to obey the word of the Spirit that's in your Bible. And when you do that, you're walking by the Spirit. You're being more fully moved by the Spirit. But the Spirit never leaves the New Testament believer. When you walk by the Spirit, all that means is that you're obeying the commands of the Spirit of God given to us in His word. John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So while the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament believer, he was excessively more active and is in the New Testament believer. As Jesus has stated, if he had not gone away, the Spirit would not have come in greater fullness So the work of the Holy Spirit and the person who has received the river of life, that person who is finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ, he's going to trust the Spirit of God to move on his heart in relationships with people. What's that going to look like? Well, as I prayed in our opening prayer this morning, it's going to mean instruction It's going to mean encouragement. It's going to mean serving each other. This is why we have family groups. That's your Christian family. That's the people that you most lean on, that you need. Be certain that the person who disengages from or never gets legitimately involved in a family group, he's going to try to live his life on his own. And when difficulty arises and when he's tempted with great sin, he's going to fail. Because he's not dependent upon the body. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, And God raised the Lord. Now, anytime you see that terminology in the Scripture, then what follows is dependent upon it. You know what I mean by that? When the gospel is applied to a person's life, there are necessary results. You know The way we would say it is that the person who is in Christ has good works. The person who is set apart for holiness loves holiness. So And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power, right? So your hope is in the resurrection for your own resurrection, for your eternal life. It's in the resurrection of Christ. That's the point there. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Remember years ago, many years ago, a friend of mine said to me, Todd, I think I now understand that sexual sin between two people is much more spiritual than it is physical. And he's right. He's right. There's something that happens when sexual morality takes place. There's some sort of connect, disconnect. There's some sort of intimate, interdependent hatred that results from that. And Paul is saying, "Would I take the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, God the Spirit, and connect him with a harlot?" Never. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. This is not a case for people who've committed sexual immorality for getting married. It's an indicative, not an imperative. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The person who is satisfied in Christ, the believer who's satisfied in Christ, understands What happens when sexual immorality takes place and he understands that his ability to run from that is rooted in an understanding of and a dependence upon the gospel, the work of Christ in his atoning death and his new life-giving resurrection. For you were bought with a price. There was an actual, legitimate, definite purchase. And for those who are actually purchased, they show it. They show it. How? By glorifying God in their body. The text says, Because Jesus was not yet glorified. John 17, 5 says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Acts 1, 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So in the moment that Jesus has returned to heaven, the spirit begins to do his greater, fuller work that will be given in greatest fullness at Pentecost. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus returns to his glorified state. The result would be a constant, loving, Comforting, strengthening, personal reminder from God Himself of the satisfaction that we have in Jesus, the river of life, who quenches our spiritual thirst in a dark and dust filled world. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. But I want to emphasize that this satisfaction is very practical. A lot of times we look at the spiritual truths of the Bible and we see them as some sort of ethereal, unattainable fantasy. But it's not. It's not. And it's critical this morning that you do an assessment of your own heart. Do I experience satisfaction in Jesus. I'm not talking about uninterrupted satisfaction, meaning that you never sin and you never get discouraged and you never get depressed and you never get angry and you never sin in your heart in other ways. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that your hope is not in guilt-driven penance that causes you to say, well, you know, I didn't obey the word of the Lord, so I'm going to sacrifice something. I'm know i going to do Lent. That's what I'll do. And then I'll feel better about how I didn't perform. That's what Saul wanted to do. Saul disobeyed the word of the Lord, and he pleaded with Samuel to restore to him, to maintain for him his public face so that he could have it in good with the Lord. And Samuel said, no, it's too late. I think it's safe to say that Saul had committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in which he wanted to repent, and it was too late. Here's what this ought to look like in your life. Paul, in Philippians 4, speaks of doing all things in Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, be careful that you don't use all to encompass something that Paul's not talking about. When you use the word all, there's a context You all get in the car. You don't mean the whole world. Neither does Paul. He doesn't mean all things that you might ever want to do. Don't plug your career dreams or your sports dreams or your video game dreams or whatever into this verse. Don't do it. What's he talking about? He's talking about the ability to have significant money and to have no money, and to be satisfied. How can a person do that? Paul explains it. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He's talking about their willingness to help pay his bills. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's the idea. No matter what the circumstances, I will be content. doesn't mean I'm going to be lazy and not work. Don't misuse it for that. The point is that whatever the circumstances are, I will be content. How so? Verse 12, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We live in an intentionally dissatisfied culture. Every ounce of marketing presented before you is intended to help you understand just how much you don't have. If marketers can convince you that you have needs you didn't know you had, then they can convince you to buy things that you, in fact, don't need. But finding satisfaction in Jesus means that you find it in his commands. And the commands that are given to you and me today are different from what was given to the apostles. The church hadn't been established yet. They didn't have the church. The church hadn't been planted yet, but it has When Jesus speaks of himself as the river of life, he's speaking to the fact that those who come to him to drink of that eternal water will be so overjoyed that that river of life will overflow into the lives of others. The way the psalmist says this in Psalm 40 is that those who look on, the enemies who look on when they see that God has placed me on a rock, He has placed a song in my heart. As I sing the truths of the Lord, those who have rejected him, those who don't believe, they will see the joy that I have. In our text this morning, the idea is that river of life flows out of our hearts. It's a very colorful picture. And the result is those who see that in us, especially those who knew us prior to knowing Christ, when it's articulated well, we have the opportunity to communicate the gospel in a way that God's going to save them. That's the way he saves people. Romans 1.17, it's from faith to faith. And you've got no credibility if you don't display that river of life in your heart attitudes and in your conduct and in your speech. And therefore, no unbeliever who God might be drawing unto the Son would have any interest in hearing what you have to say about it. On the other hand, if you're in Christ, you're growing, Right? You love the Lord, and you love the Word, and you fail just like I do, and you find yourself increasingly joyous, especially in the midst of affliction, and you understand that God is sovereign, and you rest in that, and you understand that that does not dismiss your responsibility, and you rest in the U-shaped reality of both, that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are critically true and very important. So you sit in the middle, and you say, Lord, I know you've got it all sorted out, and I never will. I know both are true, and so I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to worship you in your sovereign grace, but I'm not going to reject one iota of your commands for my life and your word. And people will see that, especially when that was feigned. When you were the pretend Christian, when you were the false convert, and God actually saves you, you know what? That's a more massive change. People are going to be skeptical, just like they were of Paul. And Barnabas created the handshake between Paul and the apostles, right? And so someone will come alongside of you, not in your defense, but in defense of the gospel, to say, yeah, this is what it looks like in a false convert who actually becomes converted. You'll have the joy of seeing the Lord do a work, not only in your life. That's, that's amazing, isn't it? When you really your heart attitudes really start changing, and you're willing to address your sin before others do? Your joy, your satisfaction, your contentment in Jesus is found in obeying him by serving his body. One of the greatest joys of my life, which is one of the most difficult things in my life, is sitting down with my family and confessing my sin to them. It's a joy because I know the Lord will use it, but in the moment it's awful because I have to say, forgive me again. Please forgive me. I had a wonderful conversation with one of my sons this last week about that. The satisfaction of being a believer comes in resting in Christ who is the water of life. And one of the things I never wanted to be was a worthless dad. My fourth son is seven. Seven. You've got six kids, you've got to divide your time and try to figure out how to do that. and Trust the Lord. It's a joy. Every minute is joy. But in dividing my time amongst six kids who are aged two through 13, I can confidently, not boastfully, but confidently tell you that I have spent literally a thousand times more time with my seven-year-old than my dad did with me, who died when I was eight. A thousand times, no exaggeration. And so I never wanted to be that dad. But the truth is, at times, I am. When Dawson was three or four, and I was working in the garage, Kimberly told Dawson, go say goodbye to daddy, because we're leaving, and so he of course did that. About the time he got into the garage to my workbench I had walked around the side of the house and he was perplexed, didn't know what happened to me and so he you know, went looking for me and I'm going around this way of the house now I'm looking for him and we're <laughs> doing this and, and he starts to just weep. He was devastated, couldn't find me, just wanted to say goodbye. And um, he found me and we met up <clears throat> and um, I hugged him and um, he had said to me, I couldn't find you. I couldn't find you. And you know, they drove away. I know what that's like. Some of you know what that's like. You had no dad. And I thought, man, that was my whole life as a kid. Couldn't find my dad because he didn't exist. First of all, you know, he left when I was six. That's horrible. And then he comes back, and it's just a ridiculous mess. You know, Adultery and who knows what else is going on and then he dies. And I had thought, man, I'm going to be a good dad. And um, here my little boy is just falling apart because he can't find me. Well, at least we found each other and I gave him a hug and they were off and everything was fine for the moment. But that's not my fault. That was just, we didn't find each other. But there have been times where I've failed my children, failed my wife. But my satisfaction is not being able to look back at my performance and say that it was better than it was worse. That my good conduct outweighed my worse conduct. Certainly I would hope to be able to say that, but that's not where my hope is. My hope is in that I drink from the Savior. That in His sovereign grace, He who is God who controls all things, is gracious to grant repentance and belief in such a way that my hope would not be to perform better, but that it would be to rest in him so that my desire is to honor him and that my evil conduct would be killed and that my loving, trusting conduct would be nurtured. To drink from the living water of life so that water will overflow into other needy, thirsty souls. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, and that you've given us satisfaction in him. Help us, Lord, never to look at this concept in a way that is unrealistic or fantasy-like, Lord, help us to be willing to cling to what we know about Jesus and to cling to what we know about him to be good, things that we have not yet understood. Lord, help us to reserve comment, uh, but to rest in in what we know about him, specifically that he has called us to walk by the Spirit, to not take God the Spirit into any inappropriate circumstance, to trust that you will give us the wisdom to know how to serve you and how to honor you. Lord, that we, each of us, would be individuals amongst a people who is committed to the river of life, that out of our hearts would flow rivers of living water because God the Spirit indwells us that we might worship the Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.